Before her role as COO at Milo, a consumer internet startup eBay acquired in 2010, Wen Yi was a consultant with McKinsey & Company in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. Today, she's the CEO and co-founder of Polymath, a venture studio that builds digital platforms to empower the middle class in Latin America. Wen Yi and I talk about her passion and reasons for developing companies, specifically for the middle class in Latin America, and Polymath's model based on co-building with corporate partners. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. As a starting point, last time I saw you, we were in Guatemala. Yeah, it was really good. Wasn't that like a crazy venue that we were at? Like we were at like some, I think it was like that first venue was such an impressive kind of, you know, backdrop. Yeah, it was a convent, right? Yeah. Exactly. A convent, like an old convent, uh, such an interesting, uh, interesting place. Well, well, listen, it's so great to, you know, to connect with you. We, you know, we've, we've met a handful of times in person and we kind of intersect. I've actually got my Columbia a shirt on, a sweatshirt on today, just in your honor here, because um, you have some ties to Columbia, nice. as, as do I. Um, this is my Christmas present I got for um, from my Colombian family. But let's talk a, a little bit about you, Wen Yi. And you know, you graduated as a physicist, and then you became a quant trader, a management consultant. After that, you took some interest in the startup world uh, back in 2009. So take us back to that, and what made you want to be part of all of that? Well, you know, I, um, I think the, the, so I studied physics and philosophy and, and people always say like, well, those are really different things. Like, well, how did you end up studying both of them? And I always say that it's, I've always been interested in fundamental problems and, and asking the why, why is the world the way it is and so forth. And, and physics and philosophy just kind of interrogates it with different instruments, one from a quantitative perspective and the other more in terms of logic. And so I think that um, I started out, you know, both academically and in my career just to try to understand the overview of the world, right? And I think management consulting is very much like that um, in terms of getting that generalist overview of how is business done, what are the fundamental drivers and first principles around business. Uh, but I think one of the things that led me to startup world was um, at McKinsey, we were doing quite a bit of work in terms of studying innovation clusters because we were actually, I, I actually worked in Dubai. And so we were helping one of the countries design an innovation cluster from scratch, if you believe that such a thing can be done. But anyway, that was what we were trying to do. And, and because of that, I came across, you know, a few decades of internal McKinsey research um, that's not publicly available around innovation clusters around the world, not just Silicon Valley, kind of the dynamism, how did they get started? How long does it take really to create an ecosystem and, and, and so forth? So I got super fascinated by it. Um, I, I had some background because of the science side. So I understood that type of research and how does research go from a university setting, let's say, into commercialization. So I had some of that context from the academic side. Um, and I just became really fascinated by, at a high level, like innovation, how does it work? Um, how do ecosystems come together? How do they evolve? Why are some so dynamic and why are others, you know, quite different um, and, and so forth? So and that's how I got really interested. And I think when I decided to leave McKinsey, it was actually kind of in the pits of the last cycle that we were in, right? In terms of you know 2009, um, and it, I ended up in Silicon Valley because I decided, okay, the next step after you know getting this overview around business principles of management um, consulting was really to actually engage with building, right? And and, and by the way, I'll mention I I'm always actually thinking back. I've always been an entrepreneur, but just being kind of the daughter of a Chinese scientist that moved to the U.S. I didn't even know what I was doing was called entrepreneurship. Like I had started a bunch of companies before in high school and in college. I just thought it was like, oh, this thing didn't doesn't exist. I think it should. I'm going to start it. I didn't know that it was called entrepreneurship, right? So I had actually been doing that since I was quite young, and um, and so then you know as I really understood the nomenclature and 
and the profession, then it was very clear that it was about building. It was about getting involved at a very early stage. I feel like there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, just as a quick uh, reaction and question, do you think you can design a, 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 an ecosystem? Can you can you top down kind of assemble what it takes to make a you know what was the conclusion from the McKinsey work that you did there before we dive into your foray into startups uh, as an operator uh, in the Silicon Valley at Milo? Yeah, so I think the short answer is um, probably not, but you can do things to accelerate it. So, so I think the one insight, and this is one of the things that led me to Colombia. Um, I think the dominant insight I took out of my synthesis of the McKinsey work is that if you can have, um, if you can find a place that has a lot of talent, and you can really figure out how to kind of motivate that talent and and focus that talent towards a certain certain industry or certain type of you know endeavor, um, it, you can accept really kind of potentialize it, right? So the basis is talent. If you don't have an advantage in talent or a spike in talent in some way, it's almost impossible around the around innovation ecosystems. And this is why, like, you know, the comparison to Israel, for example, that most people make is like irrelevant because Israel has such a unique history related to the talent would happen, you know, after the USSR broke up and and the ties to the US and like these types of things are almost impossible to replicate. But there are other types of talent stories that different countries can take advantage of. There are some countries that don't have a talent advantage. And I think that then it's almost impossible, basically, to to kind of build an innovation ecosystem. So you took your talent to the, the Silicon Valley, right? And you you joined uh, as a you know part of a, a startup as CEO of, a, of an e-commerce a business called Milo, and eventually got acquired by eBay. Talk about the journey as a first-time startup executive all the way to exit. What did you learn there? So, so I joined Milo when it was a handful of engineers. I was the first business person to join the team. Um, so it was, you know, half a dozen people at the time. And um, so very, very early days. And um I think that in Silicon Valley, it's very different because there's such a robust, even in 2009, 2010, there's such a robust ecosystem that you can, you can go about solving one part of the problem and end up being important for, you know, a larger company to acquire, to fill in kind of a bigger problem they're trying to solve. I think that's a big difference between building in Silicon Valley or in a more mature ecosystem versus building in Latam. In Latam, I think you need to take on, you know, full problems that are almost too big for an, in any individual company or entrepreneur to solve and try to kind of make it all work as you've experienced yourself, right? Um, I think my learnings in Silicon Valley, one, I was, you know, it's still back to, I think our experience at Milo, we were acquired relatively early. It was a very nice return um, for everybody, but we were still like more a series A company when we were series A, series B company when we were acquired. Um, but, um, I think what I learned at the time, I mean, we did so many things wrong. Like, you know, our average age was, I don't know, I was 26 when we were acquired. And so like the average age of the company was probably around my age. So we were making like mistakes left and right, you know? And I think the big learning for me, I, 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 I wrote down a reflection like about six months after we exited and it was, you know, we did almost everything wrong, but we got one thing right, which was the team. And I think that really increased the odds of us, at least in that type of environment, having a pretty decent outcome, right? And what, what was it about the team that, was, that made it successful? So I think... In our case, in Milo, and I think you can do it different ways, but I think we had an incredibly strong engineering team for the size and stage that we were. So, um, so the and and there was, you know, we we for a relatively young and small company, we had built up really strong um, talent practices around how we hired. Um, how we manage the team. So, for example, after we were acquired by eBay, 
they, one of the big reasons they told us um, they acquired us was they really, as a large company, wanted to learn from Milo's practices in terms of attracting kind of the next generation and a different type of engineering talent into eBay. So after we were acquired, I was very involved uh, kind of on the main talent committee at eBay to figure out, you know, how to inject more of that um, startup engineer, engineering team, um, tech lead DNA into a much larger company. So that was one of the more like, you know, um, tangential reasons, but quite an important one that we were told by the CTO of eBay at the time that they made the acquisition. You mentioned talent is a fundamental, you know, part of ecosystem development and opportunities for a region. Let's talk about polymath a little bit because you're focused on Latin America's middle class. It's the thesis you have is to solve those fundamental problems in Latin America that affect the middle class, you know, find solutions, develop prototypes and invest in creating startups. So why did you choose to focus on the middle class? And is there any connection between your upbringing and this thesis? Absolutely. Right. So I think that I, um, I was born in the eighties in China and, um, you know, it's not that long ago, but the eighties were really different. Like we had food stamps when I was young. Like I remember, you know, only being able to eat like pieces of meat once a week from the canteen at my dad's university, because that's like, and we're in like pretty good shape compared to the rest of the population, right? So I think I grew up in a very resource-constrained environment um, because that was just the context that China was in. And then seeing it evolve so rapidly through these stages within the first few decades of my life, I think made a tremendous impact on me in terms of being very optimistic about what is possible for a country and region, right? I think there's many people whether they kind of have always grown up in the developed world, U.S., European context, where, you know, people are generally relatively well off um, and there's not that much progress. Growth is at 2 or 3% a year, right? So you can go through an entire lifetime and life doesn't change that much. Um, or people who are used to looking at um, countries that are poor and are poor for generations and centuries. I think I happen to grow up in uh, a context where China was growing in a tremendous way. And I moved to the U.S., um, you know, when I was younger and then had the comparison as well. So I think that made me just fascinated by what growth can do for a society, right? And, and what makes countries rich, what makes countries poor, how can that be changed? So I think there's a fundamental curiosity, belief, uh, because of what I observed around me. Now, in terms of the middle class thesis for Latin America, I think the first component of it is, you know, I am, I really believe in the rise of the 99%, like kind of the South, global South story because of what I've seen in China, right? And, um, and I, I'm not trying to say that everything in China can be, and, you know, uh, is going to happen everywhere else just because China's unique in, in its politics and its structure and its history and so forth. But I think there are things that are really relevant and, and we see that, right? Um, so I really believe in that thesis. And I think if you dig into the macro and microeconomics of it, there's an important problem, which is usually called the middle income trap. Um, so generally around the world and Latin America, for better or worse, the poster child for it, we, we generally know, you know, if we think about the IMF, the World Bank, what's been learned over time, how to get countries from lower income to middle income. But there is no real understanding of how do you get middle income countries to progress to higher income. And it's a very complex issue that would take multiple like podcasts to essentially unpack. But I think, you know, what I learned is um, because I, I had worked for McKinsey in the Middle East and Africa and South, South Asia, I'd seen like lots of different countries in and around the middle class, whether they were lower middle class and, and, and they were very different culturally, but they were very similar in terms of the microeconomics. If you go on the streets, if you look at the shops, if you look at the vendors, 
if you talk to people, the dynamics of how they relate to each other economically and what type of jobs were available, it's very similar, right? So it's about the income level. And I think one of the big, the component of the trap is around how do you make micro and small businesses that are usually somewhat informal, how do you make them more productive? Because if you cannot make them more productive, that's where the vast majority of population stays and their ability to grow, grow income and grow their resources to give their kids better opportunities just kind of stays there, right? And it seems like governments in general are like pretty bad at solving this issue. Um, so I became really fascinated by the problem um, because I like hard problems. I like problems that don't have really obvious answers. And I had seen in my kind of life experience a really interesting rapid growth story and China, by the way, still has a middle income trap issue. So it, China has not fully solved it, but it's, you know, it's one of the, the ones that at least gives us glimmers of hope that it is a problem that can be solved, right? Um, I think specifically in terms of Latin America, as I mentioned before, um, Latin America is the poster child for the middle, middle income trap because in all the global, in all the regions in the world, it is the region that got to middle income the earliest, and it's kind of stayed there the last few decades, right? And so, um, my husband's Mexican. You know, I, there's very some personal ties to the region, but I also think I was just fascinated to to understand deeply what it is and to try my hand at solving the problem. And, and as you mentioned, this is our thesis at Polymath. So in the early years, we were doing more R&D, more than anything. Yes, we were building companies, but we were really trying to understand, okay, what are the needs of this population, whether it's in terms of financial access or access to work or access to better jobs? But then how do you actually, what is the business model that ends up getting funded over time and really, really kind of changes productivity for this population? Right. And it took us a number of years to figure that out. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. Walk us through the kind of the first year or like as you're trying to figure out what you, you know, you did all this R&D research, you, you identified some, you know, some opportunities and trends in the region. And, you know, you, you obviously decided to kind of stake your career on, on Latin America because that's where you've been invested over the last kind of decade. Talk about those first kind of discoveries that you made. How has the business model evolved? What did you learn when you started? And, and then how have you adapted to your, your lessons and learnings as you got more exposure in the region? Yeah, I think that's, um, I think we, we, uh, in the early days, we, you know, understood how people's, what their household economics looked like. How did they, you know, make a living? Those were important things as well as what were their biases, um, and psychological kind of conditioning, right? So for example, um, Latin America is, uh, for a, bunch of historical uh, reasons, it is a very low trust society, um, but it's very high trust between, you know, uh, family and friends. So there's a lot of like, there's not a lot of trust and there's actually a ton of distrust in institutions and people in the wider society, but really, really a lot of trust in the, the people very close to you. So that's a dynamic that influences everything, influences you know, how businesses are built, how labor relates to business owners and, and so forth. And so that's one learning. I think the one of the other um, components is around uh, what we call cash tight. So every peso counts. So it is, it's very middle class, but even compared to other middle class countries, the ser services provided by the public is not 
that much. Like, you know, in Colombia, most of the middle class actually pay out of pocket for education for their kids, even if they're paying $50 a month, right? And so, so it, the, the, there's, if you look at it on paper, the, the disposable income is, is quite decent. Um, but actually, when it comes to expenditure, because they have to pay so many things out of pocket, including health and so forth, there is this extreme price sensitivity, right? And so then the types of business models and the monetization of business models need to look really different than in a developed country. Um, and so, and I think Latin America has, bec- I mean, the trust is an interesting part that influences a lot of what go-to-market has to look like, right? It's it's very different than Asian countries where, um, especially in China, I would say there's, there's a huge, like if something's new and technology-oriented, everybody wants to adopt it. I think for a long time, um, in Latin America, I think the pandemic changed many things. And that's why the pandemic was so net positive, I would say, for the region in terms of digital um, and in terms of this like big unleashing of potential there. But I think Latin culture is relatively conservative if you think about this trust component and how do people change decisions? How do they change the way they do relatively complex things in their lives, right? I think even more so for the, for the mass population. So summarizing i would say that in the early years not only were there much was there much lower digital adoption but i would say that we we had we had a a point of view that was incorrect or not fully correct um where when we looked at the population we said oh this is all these businesses are so informal taxis are so informal small tiendas like these corner shops are so informal um, auto repair shops are so informal. What if we go in and formalize these industries so we can bring efficiencies, better business practices, better business models into them? And I think we were wrong. I think people don't want to be formalized. They want to be empowered. Right? And I think that... How does that look like then? What is the strategy as opposed to kind of formalizing and institutionalizing versus empowering? Yeah, so I think this is where digital business models are so powerful, you know, in terms of marketplaces, in terms of, uh, because let me give you an example of Autolab, which is a business that we started originally as a tech-enabled business where we actually operated shops, um, you know, in nicer locations, branded, uh, the the, the um, uh, mechanics were on payroll, right? And we We were... And and we thought that was the way to reform and kind of um, make the industry much better, not only for the consumer, but for the labor. And I think it, it's not like that. I think people are motivated. Mechanics are motivated to own their own uh, shops. That's kind of the big motivation, right? And so as soon as we turn the business into a platform business where our main customer is the shop owner, and we're actually giving them a whole set of you know, both like technology as well as business tools to grow their businesses, many problems that we could never solve when we are operating the business suddenly got solved. Let me give you an example. Um, our um, guarantee rate or warranty rate was about 12% when we were operating the shops ourselves, which is kind of industry average. That's what Chevrolet has and so forth. When we went to the platform model and it was an Autolab co-branded shop right where the owners felt the that the full ownership that we were more like a digital um franchise the the warranty rate dropped to 2.5 percent and so i think that says a lot about what should centralized businesses own like you should decide if you're going in china's transformant industry what should you what are you going to be uniquely good at and which and what risks are you better at handling and which risks and management is the is the person you're empowering better at handling right in this case that type of detailed um quality issues that shop owner knows much better how to handle that than we ever would because he grew up as a mechanic he knows all of the tricks and all the the not kosher things that are done and so 
So I think there's that happens a lot when you're talking about um, industries uh, where you know it, it's there's a lot of complexity, and it's about how do you manage incentives and how do you operate that. If everything can be digitized, that's different. But I think most service businesses, which is sixty percent of the lockdown economy, is not that. Right. So you need humans to be interacting. There are physical things. So then how do you empower the right people to be involved in the ecosystem? So would you say that in Latin America, it's much more attractive to be kind of a B2B uh, provider player than a B2C? Like, I mean, that example you gave, instead of you taking over and doing the full stack you know, process and serving the customers, you went in and built you know, software tools and support so that the shop owners could operate more efficiently, but they still had the ownership mentality and they're still dealing with the consumer directly. So do you believe that there's more opportunities? Do you focus on B2B more, B2C, or does it, or do you care, or B2B2C? What, what's the preference? Yeah, I would say that um, we generally like B2B2C. I think it's a, it's a model that's worked very well for us. Um, I mean, most times anyway, you're, especially if you're building um, a more you know, managed marketplace or verticalized SaaS, like you have multiple customers anyway, there's different stakeholders. So it's never purely one or the other, right? When you're going, again, intervening in pretty large industries at a a, a fairly, you know, broad level. Um, But we we like the instances in which, and by the way, when we talk about B2B, we're not talking about enterprise SaaS. I mean, I think the opportunities for enterprise, true enterprise SaaS in Latin America is much narrower, right? It's not like the U.S. I think a lot of enterprise solutions tend to be global solutions. Um, and, and because of kind of the pyramid of, of firms, there's just not a lot of true enterprise firms, um, maybe besides Brazil. And so when we talk about B, we're talking about little B, right? We're saying, how do we serve? Um, the small media businesses, or even how do we serve the micro entrepreneurs uh, or uh, single proprietor and people? So, but but we think that the motivation that you can and the leverage you can get by serving them uh, and helping them not just make their business more productive and efficient, because I think when you're having a small business, it's you're thinking much more about the top line than the bottom line. Because, I mean, you're, you're really only dealing with so much volume, right? And so what we, um, what we pitch to the auto repair shop owners, we're pitching how, how does our solution not only make you run your business better, but really bring you more customers. So I do think when you're solving for little B, it's hard for you to just say, I'm going to make you run your business better. It's much more, it's always going to be a significant component about how do I bring you more customers. Sure. Yeah. How do we grow it? Uh, lowercase b, how do you get, get more customers in the door? Let me transition a little bit because this is, you have a unique model given that, you know, you kind of have, you know, the venture fund component, but then, you know, you're kind of a company builder. Um, you know, so you've got the, you're kind of like, you know, merging these two. And I think that one thing that's been fascinating to me recently as I've embarked back on the entrepreneurship journey in building products, building software for customers, you know, I'm, you're, you're quickly humbled to the, 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 the almighty product market fit, you know, achievement, which is, you know, it, it's, I, I kind of joke about it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like when you, you know, you have a baby and, you know, there's a lot of challenges. It's, you know, it's hard in the beginning, the baby's waking up all the time, but you're so captivated by the love you have for the creature that you forget about all the hard things and you have another baby and then you're like, oh shit, I remember how hard this is in the beginning, right? Right. As a father of two. And, you know, so I'm now back in the driver's seat building a company again. And and it's, you know, it's hard to get, you know, to get customers to, you know, talk to your customers, understand what they want, build what they, you know, build the solutions. So if, if I'm correct, you've, you know, you've got four companies in the portfolio that you've, these companies have seen over 70 million in capital raise for these ventures. And I'm sure that not all four companies were successful from the beginning. I'm sure some didn't work just like the normal venture, you know, law. How do you master this product market fit, given that it's so hard to do that for one company, yet doing it for multiple companies, like seems a little bit like madness. So tell me the tricks of the trade here. Yeah, it is madness, right? Um, I I think there's, 
I think that we um we we do have uh, we have built over the years um through trial and error a, a, rel- a, a robust methodology in terms of getting to product market. I, I think my view is kind of if you don't have an edge in understanding how to get to product market fit, you shouldn't be a venture builder. Like that's that's basically one to one, right? Um, and and I think our numbers show. Of course, we've had failures. I think our hit rate has has increased, but we you know fifty percent of our companies get to Series A, which is about double what the industry is, right? So and I think that number will keep going up. I think that it can be seventy percent. Uh, so so I think um. The methodology for us is is the following. You know, we go through. Let me kind of describe different phases um, and gates that we have, and then also what are the critical aspects to hit within those gates. What are the key, like, um, you know, keys to success in those different gates? So I think we have um, we have a few really macro stages in, in on the studio side. One is um, the initial co-founding, co-building component, which is uh, getting to initial product market fit. And that, let's call it uh, from beginning of, I don't even know what industry or problem I'm solving to getting there. It's an 18-month process. Um, and, and then there is, um, after getting to that initial product market fit, then I think our engagement is um, much more around catalytic aspect so that's around talent fundraising um you know how do you scale the technology team how do you think about finding another growth lever uh and so forth but we are no longer involved um in a day-to-day way um and then and then i think after series a we're mostly operating at the board level still very involved kind of a great partner in many ways but you know, the company should be able to, um, we can guide, but the company should be able to solve even big uh, pivots and things like that on its own, right? So that's kind of the high level. In terms of the product market fit phase that you were talking about, we divide it into a, a few phases. One is the ideation, then we have validation, which is more the MVP cycle, and then um, it, and then that what we call the PMF phase, which is that continuous learning and iteration process to get to product market fit. I think for me, the one of the most interesting things in ideation is we usually it's not just you shouldn't start a business because you know, I mean, I think there's always are you interested in the space? Is it a big enough space and so forth? But we usually we say like you should not move forward until you have a unique insight, right? So you have a really deep insight about the industry slash customer. Maybe you don't fully know how to solve it yet, but it's an insight that's different. So, so let me give you an example. We uh, one of the, the younger companies that's at Series C right now is called Pani Health, and it's a marketplace for procedures for surgical procedures. Um, out of pocket, which is, you know, in a society like Mexico, the entire middle class is basically out of pocket for those types of procedures. And one of the biggest insights we came to when we were doing the research is that people shop around. There was like a really strong shopping around behavior. Once you know, like, hey, I have a problem here and I probably need to get it dealt with um, through a procedure, then they'll take, um, like months shopping around. And that shopping around behavior then gives you a lot of insight in terms of like potentially what, where, how do you essentially build a solution, right? It's not about, oh, is it a big town? Yeah, it's a big town. But it's that insight then then leads you to some very fundamental aspects of what business model can work. Then the marketplace model can work because if there isn't a shopping around behavior, then I think the CAC and the way that people make decisions might not suit a marketplace model. So we always look for something like that, right? In the case of Elena's, which is our social commerce business, social commerce is all over the world. It's taken many formats. But for us, the insight was there was already this $30 billion direct sales industry. Left. And that's the type of social commerce that's already happening 
offline. So then how do you think about um, it online? And um, and then specifically, what do you want to improve about the traditional direct sales model? How can digital really help you kind of build a 10x better product on that? So so before we even get to building the MVP, we spend a lot of our time trying to understand what is the deep insight around the industry and around the customer. I think that usually gives you a directionality and a depth um, around what product you should be building that could be a 10x better solution. I think the next phase for us is, of course, building the MVP, and we're very strict about it, right? So it's we're very strict about low fidelity, only a couple of key features uh, behind this 10x better value proposition, right? And and I think this is this is the key. I think a lot of entrepreneurs overbuild in the MVP. Uh, they don't charge the way they should, right? It, it's almost like there's a love for the idea already, and there's not a willingness to kill it. Like so, we really set the conditions of saying, like, you need to, like, I need to impress myself with how this MVP turns out in order for me to move forward. And so. So I think we're very strict about that, not only about the low fidelity, but about where, where, what are the key features? Because your key features are really based on that insight. And if just having that key feature doesn't bring the early customers, your insight was wrong, right? Or not as powerful. So you shouldn't be moving forward. Um, and then I think the other piece, once we get into product market fit, usually before we, you know, Towards the end of that validation MVP phase, we're very careful around defining what we call the beachhead market and the, and the core features that we're really going to build out, right? So again, taking the case of Tani, we needed to understand, yeah, yes, the middle class is 40, 50% of this population. Yes, most of the procedures are out of pocket, but okay, like they're all very complex and different. So which segment of the population are you going after and which types of procedures, right? And so that really understanding what that should look like through a combination of analysis, as well as just seeing what is the behavior um, from the customers, it, we ended up choosing, like for in that case, for example, we decided to choose men. And because men make decisions very differently than women when it comes to um most things, but particularly this type of health was quite different. And that was very non-intuitive, for example. Um, and a lot of that team from the data from the MVP, like men uh, converted at a rate, like probably at least 5x to women in terms of conversion rates. And we started understanding why that's the case and so forth. So I think, um, and then we ended up narrowing it down to three procedures um, that we've been working on for the last and, and then that's how you get to product market fit. So I think it's really non-intuitive oftentimes because everybody wants a big TAM. They want a big, you know, a big opportunity to work on. But actually, then you have to go really fast towards a really narrow segment product 10x value proposition. And I think that being really disciplined about that is one of the keys. That's fascinating. Just to double click on a few things. So the conversion rate was higher for men. The sales cycle was faster, I guess, or the decision-making right. process was faster. And then do you look at things like the profitability of the different uh, procedures, like uh, the, the margins of the procedures, or what are the other variables uh, that you kind of, that kind of push you in that direction to focus on those three areas? Yeah, so, uh, so I think one of the things from a method methodology standpoint is we we start with insight and that insight then translates into the product side. So what value proposition, what are the core features? But it also usually, because I mentioned this cash tight issue and the ability and willingness to pay for this demographic. So we actually look at unit economics like super early. We look at like the first version of unit economics before we even go into the MVP because we need to decide how to charge in the MVP because that for this demographic, the willingness to pay is one of the biggest tests in in um, the MVP, which is very different than the U.S., right? Because in the U.S., like for many things, if you can get people to like love it, they'll find some way to pay for it. That is not the case with middle class Latin America. You cannot create new pockets of spend, basically. And so, 
So then that unit economics, you know, in the case of Gandhi turns into, you know, the cost per lead is like relatively standardized, at least at this point in Latin America. So it's really about the conversion rate, right? In order for you to get a tack that makes sense. So then you need to say, what is the average procedure value? What types of procedures have that average procedure value that I can have a tack? You know, even if I think I, you know, usually you can improve CACs by five to ten x. You can not improve CACs by a hundred x, right? And so you need to really um, understand what it, what are the physics and limiting factors you're working with relatively early. So, so when we looked at the procedures, we started seeing. Um, not only different, one, there's, you know, for example, aesthetics, the decision, because it is, you don't have to do it, the decision cycle is much more complex for aesthetics procedures. But there's other types of procedures, which like, you know, for example, one of our top procedures is hernia repair. Hernia repair is something that like, you know about, it's pretty obvious that you have a hernia like, it's not that hard to diagnose. And usually people put up, put it off until it just hurts too much. Right. So in that case, you need to get it done. So the decision making factor is really different. We also noticed within, for example, um, aesthetics that men and women make decisions very differently. For women, it's a lot about social confirmation before they make that decision. Whereas for men, it's more like, I need to get this done. I don't really want to talk to a lot of people about it. Um, and, and so that really changes what the ultimate CAC looks like, right? We've seen in other types of areas, right? Like if it's something that people are kind of embarrassed about, like an adult circumcision, the leads are really good because people are searching on the internet for that. You're not asking your friend like, hey, have you had this experience? Do you have somebody to recommend, right? So, so I think it, even though... Eventually, it's certainly a business that can cross category, uh, go across different procedure categories and figure out what those user journeys look like. Each one looks pretty different, actually. And so you do need to kind of figure out, because you have a limited time, which is the lane that you're most likely to get to that 10x the fastest. Hey there. You might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. One quick question I want to ask about this, this 18-month period. So it sounds like you're kind of allocating uh, money for 18 months to figure out and get to product market fit, similar to like a runway for a typical company that's like, okay, you're raising a pre-seed or a seed round and you've got 18 months or 24 months to kind of get to the next phase to you know, the milestones that validate that there's a, an opportunity here. When you think about this from the, you know, the, the standpoint of a company builder, are you thinking about it from like a budget? Like, okay, we have a million dollars or we have X amount of dollars. And are you across the board? Are you looking at all of your companies? And are you, you get to a point where you're just like, okay, I time to pull the plug on this one, you know, because one of the challenging things about founders is that they obsess over a problem. They're so, they're so passionate about what they're building and yet, if they struggle for three years, a lot of times they don't they don't move on because they're just like so in love with the idea. But as a as a as a venture studio, you can't afford the luxury of doing that because you know your business model will break. So how do you how do you pull the ripcord and be like, all right, time to bail out of this one. Uh, let's move on to the next one, and just kind of like and not throw you know additional money you know a- after something that hasn't really panned out. So where is the decision making process, and how much money do you allocate per venture? to get to product market fit, to find enough evidence that there's an opportunity? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's something we've gotten much better at over time. I, I think we can still get better. Um, we have we have built-in gates at this point, right? We know um, early on, I think it's, it's even easier. I think now that's pretty clear. 
Um, where, where, when do you have a real inside? When do you have a concept that stands out? You know, when does that pro- MVP work or not work? And as I mentioned, we're really strict about the MVPs, um, essentially. And we'll, we'll allow a good team to go at an MVP twice, even three times. We've had it up to three times where you learn, it didn't work, but you learned something really interesting and you completely redesigned the business. Um, but I think during that product market fit period, we have a mechanism called learning cycles. And the, the purpose of that is to, even though PMF is very nonlinear, you know, and so forth, I think, and I think you can compress, you, you can increase the density of learnings if you're very intentional about that. And through that, you can compress that learning cycle. You can't make sure you don't have any, you know, twists and turns in that, but you can compress it, right? So learnings that could have happened over a two, three-year period um, is happening within a 12-month period. So, and what's important about the learning cycle is around being very intentional of saying, okay, these are, like, we have these clear, clear hypotheses from, you know, evidence from before, um, around why this can be a 10x better product for this segment. So let's very intentionally build the comp- build the product um, so that we're validating that, right? And um, so I think that that that's and and you can think about that in terms of gates. You know, we think about it kind of on a quarterly basis, and within that we have cycles that are two to four weeks long. Um, in which we're really coming back and saying, this is the hypothesis that you designed was the experiment set up in a way that allowed us to learn about that. And, and it's not complete. I mean, you don't have perfect data, but if you're very like, hypothesis driven, I think most people will be more honest, intellectually honest about saying like, is this working or at least this part of it working? Um, because I think a lot of times good entrepreneurs over time, um, become very good at what's false as false negative right so most things when you first launch a feature or a product likelihood that it works really well the way you intend is like very low and so then you need to kind of gather the evidence and figure out like was it a fundamental issue that made this not work or was there an executional component was there a prioritization component was there like kind of i'm selling to the wrong people component and so there's a lot of qualitative understanding in that process of figuring out what what is it a false negative or not. And so I think that's your question of where um how do we decide to pull the plug? I think we have a few inputs. One, because we're pretty hypothesis driven. If some of the make hypotheses are not being proven out, I think that that's very interesting because we've had cases, we 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 closed the company last year. Where the metrics were great, we were growing over, we were growing like 30, 40% month by month. And so if you like look at a VC, they're like, oh yeah, it's fucky stick, it looks great. But what we were seeing is our fundamental hypothesis behind the business was not being proven. Right. And so that's that's a pretty important one. I think you can make, you know, if you're good enough at the startup game, you can make the early metrics look pretty good uh, without it actually achieving product market fit. I think the second part is around. Is that, is the, I think the second part is, is the founding team coming together in a way that like the speed of learning is increasing? Right. Um, and, and that cycle was getting more and more productive. Um, I think that's what has it to do with a lot of like the team dynamics, the building dynamics and so forth, but also in terms of their ability to, um, hone in on that product market fit skill set because that is not a one-time thing to build a billion dollar company you're going to have to do that many times for different segments for different products for different geographies so if the founding team doesn't become great at it it's never going to be a company that really takes off right so i think that like is the speed of learning actually increasing or not and it also tells you like how far away essentially are you at that first crack of the problem. Um, and the third one is also like around funding, right? Like, we we do start pitching 
uh, or soft pitching um, investors earlier before we need to fully raise to understand the market feedback and how other people view the business. I, it's not the only criteria. I think we've certainly even funded companies when we had to be the lead because there was no other person willing to lead at the time, um, which is not our ideal, obviously, but we've done that. Um, but we've also hold companies even when there was some other commitments um, because we're very like fundamentals driven. And uh, But I still think it's very valuable to hear other people because it's these problems are very tough and it's, it's you know despite the discipline i think you can still have an echo chamber internally yeah that's that's a challenge and it's having external kind of advice or feedback or you know um ideas helps you kind of sanity check yourself i, I want to transition a little bit because you you know besides the studio model the you know the venture studio model you launched a, a pre-seed seed, you know, fund, and you, you're investing directly into companies beyond the venture builder model. How did the experience contribute to being a better investor? So we're, I mean, we're still setting up. We're, I think, we're still early days. So I'd love to come back and and talk about this in a couple of years. Um, I think one of the, I think one of the things is certainly what you just mentioned in terms of product market fit. I think our depth of understanding of product market fit. Um, we, we feel more confident, I would say, in taking concentrated bets. So this seed fund is going to take concentrated bets. We want to lead or co-lead. We want to be pretty involved, um, because we understand what the product market fit journey looks like. And we understand that there's a lot of work to do even after you get that very initial product market fit. Right. Um, so I think we can. Uh, think through what the next steps of the journey look like in a very tangible way around product market fit. And um, so I think it's helping us think about when is the right moment to invest. Uh, And uh, so I think, so, I mean, I think my experience with a lot of VCs that don't come from operational backgrounds is they like, they always want to make sure to invest when the metrics are almost too good, <laughs> right? For the stage that they're looking for, when it's like really obvious, I think we can think about it a few steps ahead of that. Um, of saying yes, when the metrics are not fully there, but what is where? Where is the product, and do you really, really understand what are the next few things that need to happen to see if it can get there? So I think we can be much more granular about when we get involved, right? From how our experience, you, how do you balance the? temptation to want to like jump in and, 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 you know, execute for the founders, given that that's kind of the DNA of what you built. How are you going to, you know, manage that when, you know, most good preceding seed investor investors, it's very rare that you find a seed investor that like jumps in and like kind of gets their hands dirty initially because all the insights come from the customer. Right. And so how do you, how do you resist the temptation? You know, I think, if you think about our experience as a builder, we've learned um, even through the builder process when to step back because because I don't think it works otherwise, right? So I mentioned there's a period where we're pretty involved in that getting to product market fit, and and then we we become much more catal- catalysts, right? We help in certain specific points that really unlock value for the startup. So. For example, you know, you need to go from a four-person engineering team to twenty-person engineering team, and the founding team doesn't have experience of doing that. That's where, when our like, you know, that's where our experience, our CTO, like that type of coaching becomes really relevant. And I don't think a lot of other VCs have that, right? And I think that's much more relevant in a startup ecosystem that doesn't have, you know, hundreds of experienced startup CTOs lying around for you to hire. Right. Um, so I think, I think there are very clear points where being, you cannot be hands-on in an operational management way. I think that's really not helpful and kind of, um, but I think you can help on things that really complement the experience and capability of the founder. So I do not think as an investor, we should be engaged in a deep way on product market fit. I think it can help us screen 
for where companies are, what is the depth of understanding and capability of that founder to really take, take product market fit forward, but we should not be helping them find product market fit on the fun side. Makes sense. Let's let's wrap up here with a few, you know, kind of reflections as we move forward. 2023. How are you scoping the opportunities that you, you know, that you're get you excited? Where, where are you identifying uh, areas that you want to put your energy into in terms of building and investing? If you think of sectors, if you think of, you know, opportunities in LATAM, geographically speaking, talk about what that internal conversation looks like maybe at the end of the year, and you think about ramping up for 2023, where do you want to put your energy? Yeah, I think the way that, you know, we have, we have pretty clear what are the business models that we have a lot of expertise in from the building experience, right? And I think the fund is sufficiently small that I don't think we need to stray significantly from our experience set, which is mostly fintech, particularly when it comes to credit and lending, then it's e-commerce marketplaces, and then uh, whether you want to call them service marketplaces or verticalized SaaS. That's kind of where our, I think we have true competitive advantage in terms of understanding the business models. Um, I think that what I see in Latin America um, in, in terms of a, a trend is I think some of the very horizontal opportunities are either already taken, like there are companies that are big enough in them that it's not really worth starting from whether we build them internally or we invest at a very, very early stage. Um, and so I think there's going to be more verticalized opportunities. So let me give you an example. When it comes to lending, SME lending at the very kind of generic level has been taken, they're big players in each of the countries already. But I think that in a verticalized way, especially when it ties into um, real operating software, and, and embedded finance, I think you can verticalize that in a significant way, right? And uh, I think it's hard work. Um, and I think what we were seeing like in the last year or two were people who were telling the verticalized story to get funding, but they hadn't, they weren't really deeply embedded in the vertical and hadn't really built that software and that customer journey in a real way. And some of those companies have already gone out of business or, you know, are not raising the next round because they didn't really get that product market fit. Right. So I think I'm really excited to, to, to see um, entrepreneurs that are really committed to these verticalized solutions um, and are willing to put the next years of their lives building great products for that segment, right? Um, and so I think we, in, in each of those categories that I mentioned, I think we're, you're going to see more verticalized solutions. Some of those solutions might be actually a little bit heavier than what we've seen in the past. And I think it's about figuring out what is that playbook to be in really deeply integrated with the customer, but not kind of make yourself so heavy that you can't scale. And, um, and really finding entrepreneurs that are deeply committed to a problem on a 10-year basis, not like, a oh, I think it's a two-year way to, for me to become famous uh, and raise a lot of money way, right? And so, so I think when we look at 2020 and the 2023, I would love that we've, whether from the you know, building perspective or from the investment perspective, really find some of those like large, meaty, a um, little bit more segmented opportunities um, that that we can sink our teeth into, or people have gotten to an initial, you know, seed level of PMF um, in, in 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 tackling. Any short list of industries? Uh, actually, health is one that I, you know, we've gotten our first taste through Tani. I think we're we're getting very interested in where health can go. Cool. That's great. Well, Wenyi, thanks so much for uh, making the time. Really enjoyed catching up with you. Uh, there's so much more that I wish we could have unpacked about your story. I think there's some fascinating stuff that we didn't get around to around like the China connection, being in Colombia of, of, of all places and, you know, kind of what you've been able to do. We'll save that for another another time and we'll check back with you uh, after you, you know, close this, uh, this, this seed fund here and, you know, we'll, we'll see how, how things are going and, you know, as, as things evolve. 
Great. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.